Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com, and make sure you join that travel club again, travelingculturati.com, so that you're the first to know when we're on the go. Yeah, go ahead and join in on the fun. You know, we have a brand new destination coming up that is April 7th through the 17th with the WHUR World Tour. And when I say destination, of course, I mean package. We're going to Israel and Jordan. Yes, April 7th through the 17th. And today on the Traveling Culturati, we're taking a journey to Jordan with Jordan Tourism Office. From biblical history to fascinating landscapes, we're exploring this wonderful country and parts of the destination and WHUR World Tour is going to be Jordan. It's a destination that is increasingly becoming a must visit. So you'll definitely want to check that out. Of course, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. But right now, I've got some travel news. You know, we're always talking about airports, best, worst, and our experiences at the airport. Well, J.D. Power has revealed its rankings for the best and worst airports in North America. The rankings took size of the airports into consideration. So they have mega, large, and then they have medium, the three different categories. Detroit Metropolitan Wayne County Airport was named the best in that mega airport category. And Tampa International Airport ranked the highest in the large airport category. In the medium airport category, Indianapolis International Airport took the number one spot. Now, let's talk about some of the other conditions and some of the other airports and see how they fared as well. John F. Kennedy International Airport came in at number 11 in the mega category, but Newark Liberty International Airport was named the worst, ranking the very last in that same category. Now, Let's talk about LaGuardia. Yeah, remember last year LaGuardia ranked dead last? Well, they've made some improvements in its terminal facilities and J.D. Power's study has ranked it number 15 in the large airport segment. So LaGuardia Airport is moving on up and I can tell you that I've been there and there have been some major improvements and it's a whole different airport. It's not that 1960s feel kind of left back in the day airport that it used to be. Remember one of the presidents at the time when it visited LaGuardia Airport was appalled and embarrassed that this was an American airport. But yeah, good for LaGuardia that it's moved up to at least the number 15 spot. Now, along with Newark, the other worst airports in America were Philadelphia International Airport in the large segment and Kahului Airport on the Hawaiian island of Maui in the medium category. It did not have anything to do with the recent events that happened in Maui because this ranking and report was conducted from August 2022 to July of 23. 
and the study collected surveys from 27,000 U.S. or Canadian residents flying through American airports. And it took into account six factors to determine the rankings, terminal facilities, arrivals and departures, baggage claim, security check, check-in, and baggage check, and shopping for food, beverage, and retail. So these are all of the things that were taken into consideration. The data was collected during a time of chaos, of course, in the U.S. and at U.S. airports as travel industry really struggled with the pilot shortage, which led to canceled and delayed flights across the country. And then, of course, there was a record high passenger volumes and countless weather delays and cancellations. So again, talking about August of 22 to July of 23. So in July, transportation experts said the influx of flight delays and cancellations could persist for over a decade due to ongoing staffing issues. However, J.D. Power said that despite record passenger volume, crowded terminals, and a barrage of delays and cancellations, the survey found that overall customer satisfaction with airports in North America actually increased by three points. This is taking into account terminal facilities, food and beverage, and retail service and baggage claim. So it has not been an easy year in North American airports, but major capital improvements they've made over the last several years with new investments, including all of these amenities, have really made a difference. So let's look at a little bit more. Let's talk about the top five in each category. So mega airports, which means 33 million or more passengers per year. That made it a mega airport. As I mentioned earlier, Detroit Metropolitan Wayne County Airport took the number one spot coming in at number two. This is in the order from one to five. Number two, Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport. Harry Reid International Airport in Las Vegas, Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. Miami International Airport came in at number five. So let's look at the large airports. This is an airport that had 10 to 32.9 million passengers per year. That is determined by number of passengers and that makes it a large airport. The number one spot again, Tampa International Airport, followed by John Wayne Airport, Orange County, Salt Lake City International Airport, Dallas Love Field, and at number five was Raleigh-Durham International Airport. And the report pretty much goes up to the top 20, but we're not going to go through all of those. And then lastly, the medium airports. We're talking about 4.5 to 9.9 million passengers per year. Taking that top spot was Indianapolis International Airport, followed by Southwest Florida International Airport in Fort Myers, Ontario International Airport in California, Florida's Palm Beach International Airport, and number five, Albuquerque International Sunport. Yeah, so congratulations to those. Let's talk about the worst. Yeah, let's talk about the worst. So the bottom three, let's just talk about the bottom three. Mega airports, Seattle Tacoma International Airport, Toronto Pearson International Airport, and Newark Liberty International Airport. Those were the bottom three in the mega airport category. In the large airport category, the bottom three, Montreal, Pierre, Elliott Trudeau International Airport, Honolulu International Airport, and Philadelphia 
International Airport bottomed that list. And then lastly, the bottom of the medium airport list was Bradley International Airport in Connecticut, Hollywood Burbank Airport in California, and Kahului Airport in Hawaii. Yes, there you have it. So take heed when you're about to fly, looking at what those rankings are. Now, let's talk about it getting hot. Yes, I know summer's over. Yes, I do know that summer is over. However, what I'm talking about is globally. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmosphere Administration, NASA, and other organizations are saying that Earth has endured the most sizzling summer on record in 2023. So yeah, we're talking about summer that it's over now. The Earth sweltered to its hottest June through August on record. Federal scientists from both NASA and NOAA announced recently that it was the warmest summer in the Northern Hemisphere and the warmest winter in the Southern Hemisphere. Yes, this new record comes as an exceptional warmth swept across much of the globe, exacerbating deadly wildfires in Canada and Hawaii and fueling intense heat waves in South America, Japan, Europe, and the U.S. And it's likely contributing to the severe rainfall that's happened in Italy, Greece, and Central Europe. And when I was in Greece this summer, yeah, the 1st of September on, they were still experiencing some wildfires there. Remember, roads had some wildfires. There were some wildfires outside of Athens. And then August was also a record warm month for the globe, according to NOAA. Not only was August on record by quite a lot, it was also the globe's 45th consecutive August and 534th consecutive month with temperatures above the 20th century average. Yes, we have a lot to think about. Global marine heat waves and a growing El Nino are driving additional warming this year. But as long as emissions continue driving a steady march of background warming, they expect further records to be broken in the years to come. In the Northern Hemisphere, client scientists define summer as the three hottest months of the year, June, July, and August. And NOAA's global temperature records go back 174 years to 1850. NASA's go back to 1880. Now, summer 2023's record-setting temperatures aren't just a set of numbers, though. They result in dire real-world consequences, according to NASA's administrator, Bill Nelson. From sweltering temperatures in Arizona and across the country to wildfires across Canada and extreme flooding in Europe and Asia. These are threatening lives and livelihoods around the world. Well, what caused the record warmth? Exceptionally high surface temperatures, fueled in part by the return of El Nino, were largely responsible for the summer's record warmth. And this is according to Josh Willis, who is a climate scientist and oceanographer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. El Nino is a natural climate pattern marked by warmer than average sea surface temperatures in the tropical Pacific Ocean. It affects weather patterns in the United States and around the world. In addition, sea ice has hit a record low in August. It set the record for the lowest global August sea ice extent on record. Globally, sea ice extent in August was about 550,000 square miles, 
less than the previous recorded low that was set back in 2019. Europe has had its third warmest summer and climate change is happening. From NOAA climate data by the numbers, June to August global surface temperatures were 2.07 degrees above 20th century average of 60.1 degrees. This was 0.43 degree above the previous record. In the Northern Hemisphere, summer temperatures were 2.59 degrees above average. And the Southern Hemisphere, winter temperature was 1.53 degrees above average. Record warm temperatures covered nearly 13% of the world's surface this past August, which was the highest August percentage since the data set back in 1951. And August set a record for the highest monthly sea surface temperature anomaly, 1.85 degrees of any month in NOAA's 174 year average. So take the data, do with it what you will, but this is what NOAA and NASA are saying. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we're going to visit Jordan. Advantage International is heading to Israel and Jordan, April 7th through 17th. We'll visit the Holy Land and tour historic Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and Nazareth. Be baptized in the River Jordan. Visit the Dead Sea, Petra, and the desert at Wadi Rum. With five-star accommodations and world-class cuisine, Israel and Jordan, April 7th through the 17th. Go to advantage-intl.com and select the WHUR World Tour Israel Jordan. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, make sure you join that travel club so you can be the first to know when we're on the go and we go to some fantastic places. Well, I always love talking about destinations and I love it even more when I have someone on with me to talk about a destination that they represent. So chatting with me today is Janine Jarvis. She is the Deputy Director and Director of Communications of the Jordan Tourism Board, North America. Hello, Janine, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, Javon. I am very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Through my profession, I am just seeing, and also in travel journalism, I'm just seeing this increasing number of requests and top destination lists with Jordan on it. Why is that? Definitely. Well, of course, I'd like to think that it's a lot of the work that we do here, but Jordan is definitely a special destination. I've been with the tourism board for 16 years, and I've definitely seen that growth of interest and demand. When I first started Jordan was seen more as a extension or a combination with other destinations in the region. However, 
there's definitely been an uptick in interest. We've done a lot of work with the travel trade and tour operators, travel agents, getting them familiar with the destination. And I think that's kind of how we, in addition to a lot of our work with the media, certainly with media like yourself, influencers, content creators, and in this boom of social media, I think has definitely added to that uptick that you've seen. A lot of people see others going to Jordan. And that's kind of the material that we like to use and promote the destination is basically user-generated content, showing other people what travelers in Jordan are enjoying and experiencing. So generally, when we work with the media and the trade, for example, a lot of them become ambassadors. Jordan has a lot to offer. We like to call it a big, small country, and it's so diverse, and they're famed for their hospitality. So once we get people to the destination, it's an easy sell. People love it. They're always wowed by the amount of experiences you can do in such a small country and so on. So yeah, I would say that kind of is what is a contributing factor to the impact in what you're seeing. Where exactly is Jordan located? So Jordan is in the heart of the Middle East, and it's well known as the Switzerland of the Middle East. So it sits between Egypt, Israel, Syria to the north, and Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. There's a lot of political news that comes out of that region. I guess that's what you mean by noisy. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's what I meant by when I say it was once a hard sell. No, not so much, because I think people are more aware of the region and the politics, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so it's also neutral. You reference Switzerland. So it's a neutral country as well. Yes, it is very and has been a big ally to the United States. I love social media for that aspect that when people show and share their experiences in a destination, even if it's a destination that is either unheard of or a destination that people were unfamiliar or didn't feel comfortable with, when it shows you how someone is experiencing it and they're sharing those and they see how easy it is. Mm -hmm. People take interest in that. So what are some of the top destinations that we look for in Jordan? Well, for sure, Petra is the gem. That is what is usually the draw in. But Petra, then Wadi Rum, which is actually one of my favorite places in Jordan, the Wadi Rum Desert, which is famous for a lot of Hollywood backdrop of a lot of Hollywood movies. For example, Aladdin was filmed there, The Martian, some of the Transformers films, Dune. It is the backdrop of many Hollywood films. The Dead Sea, of course, that's the only place you can float. And it's the lowest point on earth, as well as the biblical sites in Jordan are a big draw as well. Jordan is a big part of the Holy Land, and the baptism site where Jesus was said to be baptized at Bethany beyond the Jordan, the city of Madaba, the city of Mosaics, Al Salt, which is an old traditional city, especially where Muslims and Christians coexist. It recently was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site for that tolerance and diversity. And Jordan is a great adventure destination as well, has lots of, because Jordan is quite mountainous and diverse in terms of its landscape, and it has quite dramatic mountains and so on. Jordan does have many canyons and gorges for those who like 
hiking and trekking, as well as canyoning. There are lots of canyons with waterfalls. You can repel waterfalls. You can do easy waterfalls. And people don't associate waterfalls and water sports in Jordan because they think it's a landlocked desert country. But really and truly, it's quite rich with a lot of diverse landscape. So you have that type of adventure. You have Aqaba on the Red Sea. So it has one of the best scuba diving sites. They have quite a few scuba diving sites and they do a lot of conservation and preservation of the coral reefs in Aqaba. So that's another popular spot. Amman, the capital, we can't forget the capital. The capital is a beautiful contrast between old and new. And it's a unique city. It's quite vibrant. Jordan has a youthful population. So there are lots of new things coming out in the city. You have interesting walking tours, art tours, street art tours, street food, fine dining. I mean, you name it. You know, you can do wine tasting. They do make wine in Jordan. They have vineyards and they cultivate their own wines. Some of them have won awards. So the culinary factor in Jordan is quite big as well. And then as you get north in Jordan, the northern part of Jordan, Umkais, which is at the top part of the country, is a famous Decapolis city with Roman ruins. And then you have the Greco-Roman city of Jerash, which is about an hour north of Amman. And it's one of the most well-preserved Roman ruins in the world outside of Italy. So Jordan has crusader castles in Ajloun and Karak, desert castles from the Islamic times and crusader times as well, Ottoman period. So, I mean, Jordan is an open-air museum and it's a land of adventure. And hospitality is what Jordania and the people are most famed for. So, I mean, that's... A little bit of what I could say Jordan has to offer. I could really go on and on, actually. But those, I would say, are the top highlights and top destinations. Yes, and I am absolutely intrigued because typically you hear of Petra and you see the images of Petra. And I think I have seen some of the images of the scuba diving, but to hear about waterfalls, because you do think of Jordan as a desert. And so you certainly don't think about waterfalls and deserts (laughs) at the the same time. So it all sounds very intriguing. Now, I know you mentioned Petra, but for those who may not know, what is the reason for going to Petra? There's an iconic site there. Let's talk about that. Petra is a city built, carved out of the mountains of an area called Wadi Musa. And it is about, I would say, 23 square miles of a city. So the pictures that people see, the images of what is called the Treasury Building or al Khazneh, which is the famous building that most people see. And it's the one that people see in Indiana Jones. That is just one of the entry facades of the site of thousands of those types of structures within the site. So Petra needs at least two days minimum to really kind of scratch the surface of the site. The site is made up of hundreds of different types of structures and tombs. So you enter through a narrow gorge and then it opens up and there's a Roman theater and there are Byzantine churches. It's really an experience more than just a site. Some of the local people actually were born inside the site before it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site. 
back in the 80s, I believe. And then the people were built a town right outside the site once it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site in order to try to preserve it. The Bedouins from the community are allowed to work within the site and they kind of manage the site as well. So Petra is really an experience more than just the site itself. And the classic tour of Petra, for example, is about three miles going in with a guided tour. And that's kind of the classic tour. And there are many different ways to explore the site because there are lots of back trails and hiking trails within Petra. So if you're putting together a trip or a program, Mm -hmm. if one wants to visit Jordan, what would be an ideal? And I know that the country, you know, offers many things, but what would be the ideal for a first time traveler to put together visiting Jordan? I would say you would have to give it at minimum seven, eight days just to really touch the highlights and the high points. Starting in the city, the capital, Amman, I would definitely give a full day to Amman and then go north. You know, you can visit Jarash, Ajloun, maybe even go as far north as Umkais, some of those ruins and hiking trails up in the north. And then usually the tradition is land in Amman, do parts of the north based in Amman, like you sleep in Amman, but you will travel north in the day, explore the city, and then you will start to head south. So from Amman, you head to Petra, but on the way to Petra, visitors will usually stop in Madaba, Mount Nebo, head to Petra, spend two nights in Petra, typically. And then if you are there on a night when Petra by night is happening, Petra by night, the site is lit by candlelight. And it's like, I usually recommend for visitors to do Petra by night the night before they actually visit the site during the day, because it's kind of a introduction into the site, a kind of a teaser into what they're going to see and experience. And it's a different way to experience the site at night in the silence and under the stars or under the moon. It's quite wonderful. That experience is only offered on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So if you are in Petra on one of those nights, I would recommend doing the Petra by Night show and then visiting the site the next day. So two nights in Petra, and then when you move on from Petra, you go from Petra to Wadi Rum, and then you spend a night in Wadi Rum. I highly recommend spending a night in one of the camps, maybe one of the traditional Bedouin camps. There are different styles of camping that you can do in Wadi Rum. You can do glamping and luxury camping in luxury tents. It's become very popular to stay in these bubble tents. I'm sure people have been seeing a lot of those images, which are wonderful and beautiful as well for those high-end travelers who like that luxury. But then you have the Bedouin style camps that are more traditional with the goat-haired tents, giving you more insight into what the Bedouin lifestyle is in the desert. And I'll tell you a little bit about the Bedouins, but just to kind of finish on the itinerary. So from Wadi Rum, you will do four by four excursions usually in the desert. They'll take you around the desert to different important spots. You can do a sunset camel ride or sunset tea. And then the next day you can drive 45 minutes to Aqaba and go from the desert into the Red Sea and go out on a boat, do 
a launch cruise, snorkel or scuba dive, and explore the town of Aqaba, which is the coastal city. Jordan's second largest city is Aqaba, actually. So it's quite vibrant as well to explore. And then from there, we usually recommend heading to the Dead Sea. After Aqaba, you head to the Dead Sea. And typically, that's where I recommend ending the trip because it's only an hour from the airport. And it's a perfect way to rejuvenate from all the hiking and the walking and the touring because at the Dead Sea, it's very relaxing. There are beautiful resorts along the Dead Sea coast where you can float in the Dead Sea. They say that the oxygen level is higher at the Dead Sea, so it's a lot healthier and you get to float because the Dead Sea is filled with so much minerals and magnesium and we have the Dead Sea mud that is very good for your skin. People who have certain skin conditions do come to the Dead Sea for treatments. The resorts at the Dead Sea have some of the largest spas within the region. So you can get a Dead Sea mud treatment or scrub and spa, different spa treatments. And it's a perfect way to end the trip. And are there spa resorts there as well? Yes, there are spa resorts along the Dead Sea in Jordan. Sounds like a wonderful place to end nice and refreshed and healthy and vibrant. So it sounds like a very nice place. Now, I did want to circle back to the gastronomy that you spoke about. Let's talk a little bit more about that, what the traditional dish is, and then how the gastronomy has grown throughout the country. Yes. So Jordan does have some typical traditional dishes that are specific to the Jordanian culture. And the national dish is mansaf. And mansaf is cooked in a very unique way because they use a type of dried yogurt that's dried and can store for years, really. And with lamb and rice, and it's cooked together in a specific way. And it's usually served at celebrations, weddings, any celebrations, especially during the Eid holiday, which is the Muslim holiday, the Islam holiday. And whenever special guests come to a home, they tend to serve mansaf, or if they're just celebrating anything, that's a special occasion. And that's a national dish. In the desert of Wadi Rum, because Jordan is, their uh, culture is rooted in Bedouin culture. Most Jordanians come from a Bedouin tribe. And in the desert, because of the climate and the atmosphere, they obviously had to cook their food differently. And so they cook their food in a pit in the sand. They build a pit and they put, I think it's the rice at the bottom and then meats and vegetables on top in a kind of, like a kind of a stand that they put within the pit. And then they cover it with foil and blankets and then they cover it with sand and it cooks underground for a couple hours. And it's called Zarb, Z-A-R-B. And that would be the traditional desert meal that the Bedouins would traditionally serve. And it's some of the most tender meat and food you'll ever eat for those who do eat meat. But there's also the vegetable options as well. Those are more traditional to the Jordanian culture. Of course, mezzas are also a big part of Jordanian gastronomy. Because Jordan is kind of also a melting pot, 
of different people from different parts of the region that come. So there's a lot of Lebanese influence and Syrian influence in the food you will see. So lots of Mediterranean style food as well. Very healthy, healthy food. Now, another part of the gastronomy that you talked about that I was surprised about is the wine productions. Tell us about that, because you don't often hear about that in a Middle Eastern country, and especially one that may be predominantly Muslim. As you know, in that region, again, it's a big part of the Holy Land. And from centuries ago, they've been making wine. You can actually see evidence of wine presses in many of the sites in Petra and in Jarash. There are some wine presses from the Roman period. But wine has traditionally been made in that region for centuries. And so there are some families who have farms out in the countryside, and they've pioneered the challenge of being able to grow the grapes themselves. And they've had to try many different ways because of the desert climate. And I don't have the full details on how they've actually done it. But from what I understand, they use a lot of the birds and different irrigation types to get the grapes to grow in the desert climate. And they do have a winery in Amman, in the capital. I think there are two companies in particular that I know that make it. One is the St. George wine, which is made by a family company called Zomat. And then you have the Jordan River winery as well. Talking about the region, I kind of think what the weather would be, but let's talk pretty much about the best time of year to go and what the climate is like generally throughout the year. We are really focused on promoting it as a year-round destination. Jordan does experience four seasons, kind of similar to the East Coast of the U.S. So spring and fall tend to be the peak seasons. Summer and winter are the low seasons. However, we've seen an uptick in travelers coming to the country throughout the year. And we're actually welcoming that because in the wintertime, there is a different way you can explore the country. You see it in a different light. So for instance, winter falls, like I said, it's similar to the East Coast of the United States. So during the winter season, Jordan can get heavy snow sometimes. So if you're lucky and you're in Jordan in December, January to February period, you could see snow in Petra or snow in the Wadi Rum Desert, which is quite spectacular. And then the summers are hot, but it's not as hot as people would think because it's a desert country and it's in the Middle East. People think, oh, it's scorching hot and you can't visit. Well, only in certain parts of the desert does it get really uncomfortable. But to be honest, it's very similar to, again, the East Coast. It can get that hot in the summer, but without the humidity. It's a dry heat. So it's very doable to still visit during the summertime. But in the summertime, what we would recommend people consider is that if you are going to the desert for a 4 by 4 excursion, you'll probably do it early in the morning or late in the evening at sunset, as opposed to in the middle of the day when it's most hot. But otherwise, I mean, the springtime is absolutely beautiful because it follows the winter when there's a lot of rain and snow. And so it's like this desert country that comes to life. You'll see the Wadi Rum Desert and the sand is covered with flowers, pretty flowers. And the Roman ruins are 
covered and littered with beautiful flowers all through the ruins. So it does look different in the spring than in the fall. In the fall, after the summer, it tends to look more dry and arid. And in the spring, it's very lush and green and beautiful everywhere throughout the country. What are some of the defining aspects of the culture? Is it similar to the region or does it differ from the region? I think it's fairly similar to the region, but Jordan is different probably because they're rooted in Bedouin culture and Bedouin culture is geared around being welcoming to all visitors. There's a tradition that if you're in the desert, for example, if you are hiking and you come across a Bedouin family's home, which is their tent, they will welcome you in without even asking your name, why you're here. They will invite you to come and sleep and stay and they will shelter you for two or three nights if you need without even asking your name. And they will feed you and they will make sure you are okay because that's just their tradition. They're very family oriented. Families are held to the highest regard in Jordan. And I think that speaks truth and testament to why they are such a neutral and peaceful country even throughout all the turmoil of the region. It's that being rooted in Bedouin culture. And I think one of the big questions that a lot of people have when you're talking about a destination in the region, in the Middle East, is whether or not it's conservative. Do you have to dress a certain way or Mm -hmm. behave a certain way? Although I think we should all think about our behavior no matter where we go, but (laughs) whenever we travel and be mindful of that behavior. (laughs) But I am asking specifically Because that's what a lot of people do ask. Do I have to dress conservatively? Do I have to cover my head if I'm a woman? And those types of questions. Of course. Yes, Jordan is a little conservative, for sure. And like you said, anywhere you go in the world, you want to respect the local culture and traditions and travel responsibly. Now, Jordan is also quite liberal. The king went to school in Europe and the United States and Jordanians are very open-minded people. So in terms of how you dress, usually as a woman, especially, or even a male, you dress as you normally would traveling anywhere through the world. You can feel comfortable dressing the same in Jordan. It's just that when you're in the downtown areas or some of the more rural towns, women don't have to cover their heads or anything. We just ask people not to wear sleeveless tops or very short shorts. And that's just to respect the culture. And when you're going into holy sites, like any of the biblical sites, just like if you're going to church, you will cover your shoulders and so on. But otherwise, women are free to dress as they are accustomed. Women in Jordan dress very similar to those in the Western world. So yeah, you can feel comfortable. Dressing as you normally would. But just keeping in consideration those specific when you're in the downtown and in holy sites. Let's get to the utility of getting to Jordan from the United States and what those travel entry requirements are as well. Yes. So from the United States into Jordan with a U.S. passport, it's very easy. All travelers have to get a visa. But U.S. travelers can get their visa upon arrival at the airport The cost of the visa is 40 JDs, or about 56 US dollars. It's an easy process. Your passport just has to be valid for at least six months. 
and they do accept visa payment and cash payment. But I think the cash payment is only in Jordanian dinars that they accept. However, there are exchange kiosks as well as ATMs in the terminal. But you can use a visa credit card as well to make payment for the visa. Other than that, currently there aren't any COVID requirements per se, but there is a form that has to be filled out. There is a pre-registration declaration form that has to be filled out prior to checking in for your flight at the airport that you have to present. There's a QR code that you get once you submit that form and you have to present that QR code at check-in. Departure cities, where can you fly from the U.S. to go nonstop into Georgia? So nonstop flights, you can go from JFK, New York, Chicago, O'Hare, and Detroit, a nonstop on Royal Jordanian Airlines. That's the Jordan National Airline. And then there's a new nonstop that launched last May 2022 on United Airlines out of Washington, Dulles, into Amman direct. Fantastic. Well, I want to go. My bags are packed and I'm (laughs) I'm ready to go. How do we get more information about Jordan? What's the website? Visit jordan.com. And we are also on social media and our handles are all at Visit Jordan. Fantastic. Well, Janine, again, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing Jordan with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. When I come back, I have the culture report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Advantage International is heading to Israel and Jordan, April 7th through 17th. We'll visit the Holy Land and tour historic Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and Nazareth. Be baptized in the River Jordan. Visit the Dead Sea, Petra, and the desert at Wadi Rum. With five-star accommodations and world-class cuisine, Israel and Jordan, April 7th through the 17th. Go to advantage-intl.com and select the WHUR World Tour Israel Jordan. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, travelingculturati.com, and make sure you join the Travel Club. We're going to some fantastic places. Actually, we're already preparing for 2025. Yes, 2024 is shaping up, but you'll definitely want to be on the list so that you'll be the first to know when we're on the go. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report, and I have the honor and pleasure of welcoming Samuel J. Lewis II, co-founder, director of Outreach for Dark Matters Series Residency Program and the Futurist Weekend in Chicago. Hello, Sam, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Thanks, Javon. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Afrofuturist Weekend, what is yes. that? It's basically at the core, it's just a celebration and claiming of Black people in a future state that we will be here and thriving culturally and artistically. And so this festival is a celebration of that, which 
was born out of a series and residency program that I started at Elastic Arts. And that's the Dark Matters residency series. So tell me a little bit more about that. I am one of the co-founders of Elastic Arts, and we're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. And we've always been a hub and a platform for artists who are beneath the surface, who are doing experimental and challenging work, trying to be a home for them. So I've been doing that work since 25 years ago, but I got to a point where as it relates to where Black people or BIPOC folks are going artistically kind of away and beyond hip hop and so forth, I created a series called the Dark Matter series, which along with my co-founder, Jonathan Woods, that kind of was more as a prompt as to what is next for us in our artistic and musical journeys. And so we started featuring artists that we felt were kind of pushing the boundaries and doing new work. And it was very successful. And we wanted to have what became a celebration of that. And that's where Afrofuturist Weekend was born. But after that, we then were like, let's take a step back and help artists to create this music, to incubate them. And that's where the residency program was born. I went to a residency. I do a lot of puppetry work personally, and I did an amazing residency. And it was really transformative for me. And I was like, you know, I really want to make residencies in general more accessible to BIPOC folks. And so we kind of morphed the series into also a residency program. And so during Afrofuturist Weekend, we celebrate the artists that are established. And then we also give platform to our current residency cohort to help them kind of work out things as they go through this residency process and as they start to develop new work. I absolutely love it. I travel a lot around the world and often the depiction or the imagery of African-Americans here in the United States is usually relegated to like that hip hop culture. And while I love the hip hop culture and certainly this year celebrating 50 years, but myself being a lover of hip hop, my generation was more of the like 80s and 90s. So kind of when it was in its infancy, but to really broaden that imagery and that depiction of the African-American culture and showcasing its diversity, I think is a wonderful thing. Now, you spoke a lot about music and instrumental artists in that sense, but how do you embrace other aspects of the arts in the Afrofuturist? Similar to hip hop, where there's what they call the elements of hip hop, which include graffiti and b-boying or dance and fashion, it's the same kind of diversity as it relates to Afrofuturist thought. And so there's a lot of visual work, which we'll be showcasing. Elastic has a gallery. It's a performance space and gallery. And so we will be showcasing some artists who we feel kind of exemplify that Afrofuturist mindset. We'll also have some vendors. We will be featuring works, movement and dance artists. And so it is like a multidisciplinary event, but there is a lot of music. Music is always a great aspect of any event, and especially one that expands and goes beyond or gives us new ideas or shaping us in that way. Going back again to some of my personal experiences, I remember going to this event, I forget what year it was, in New York, and they were showcasing this brand new group. 
And we were all like, what on earth is going on? They Just their delivery in the music, a mix of hip hop, rock, a mix of reggae. And a few years down the road, they became big. They were the Fugees. <laughs> and so, you know, when you are introduced to these new things and these new ideas and new forms of art, it's refreshing. Sometimes it makes us wonder what's going on, but then it becomes something that becomes a part of us. One of the things with this festival is that we're embracing the past, the present, and the future because it is just one continuum. So we have, for instance, Iodeli drum and dance. And so they're really tapping into ancient practices. And we're tapping into things that are today. And then we're also tapping into what people are visualizing as future states. And it's multi-generational as well. We have a program for youth on Sunday led by Angel Bat David, who's a tremendous instrumentalist and vocalist. We have elders that are going to be presenting. And so it's a whole range. You know, a lot of times people think, oh, it's forward-facing, it's youth-centered. And it is youth-centered in a way, but it's not exclusive to that. And I think we embrace all of the different things that has made us up because it's hard to go to the future without embracing your past and your present. And so we're trying to be intentional about tying those things together. Now, the dates are October 4th through the 8th, and we say Afro-Futurist Weekend, but it's more than a weekend, is it not? Yes, it has expanded, and that's been one of the great things about it. It started as a weekend, and this is the eighth iteration of this festival. And quite frankly, there were times when we were doing it three days, and we had a tough time getting audience to the Sunday event. So it has grown over the years, and last year and this year, we have expanded to five days, starting on that Wednesday. And this year, as with last year, we're doing that first day outside of the Elastic Arts facility. We're going to a place called Fortune House, which is in the Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago and a very youth-centered space. And we're collaborating with them and have been for a while. And we're going to feature Shanta Nurula, who is an amazing sitarist and actually a descendant of folks who were part of Black Wall Street who fled Black Wall Street. And then we're going to have a conversation with various folks, a panel discussion on Black sexual futures, and then also feature performances from our current cohort of Dark Matter residents. And then Thursday through Sunday, we're going to be in and around Elastic Arts. On Thursday, we're featuring some folks from Portland, Oregon, because there's a whole group of folks who we've connected with who have Chicago roots that are in Portland now, and we're bringing those folks back home, as well as a tremendous artist, Akenya. Friday, we're going to do a Afrofuturist ball, so that ballroom culture with Fabulous Freddy. And that's all created and thought of by one of our Dark Matter alums who is now working with us behind the scenes to help select future residents, Ella Katrina, who is a tremendous filmmaker and movement artist themselves. And then Saturday, we're bringing Robert Aki Aubrey Lowe from New York. We're going to have the legendary Nicole Mitchell, the flautist, performing with our co-curator and creator, Jonathan Woods. We're going to have a program outside of Elastic on Saturday afternoon as well with uh, Afro-Latinx groups, Frog Belly Society, and then Iodeli Drum and Dance, like I mentioned before, will be out there. And then Sunday, we're going to bring it back inside again with Angel's Future Youth Ensemble. And then we're going to have a performance by this really amazing string quartet, Decomposed. 
who play music by black composers and are an all black ensemble themselves. They are someone you should definitely watch out for. They are exceptional. So we have like a whole range of things through these five days and it's a completely free event. Every event is completely free and open to the public and we hope to bring people out. Sounds amazing. And so from your description, it's going to be a combination of outdoor and indoor activities. Yeah, mostly indoor, but we do have that Saturday afternoon just outside of Elastic in this place called Solidarity Triangle that we're going to be doing outdoor programming as well. One of the things that really stuck out to me is one of your Sunday evening performances, the Afri-Classical Futures Trio. I can just imagine what that sound would be. Yeah, the Afro-Classical series is another series at Elastic that has been amazing to kind of showcase Black composers and musicians, because there's a lot of folks who have been trained in the so-called classics, but they're also generating really tremendous new music and has been a great platform. And I really love that series. And it's really kind of a companion series to the Dark Matter series in a lot of ways, because we have a lot of the same goals. But yeah, so Sunday is going to be all things classical and new music. And it's going to be really fun. Sounds amazing. And so you're talking about performances, visual art installations, video presentations, panel discussions, and immersive experiences. So again, give us the date and the website. Absolutely. Starting on Wednesday, October 4th, running through Sunday, October 8th. And you can find out more information and how to register at elasticarts.org slash AFW8. I love all of it and everything that you're working on. I know we just passed it, but you're also part of the Hyde Park Jazz Festival that was just last weekend. But certainly for anybody who's not in the Chicago area, or even if you are and you didn't have it on your calendar for this year, make sure you come next year for that. But now you can go to the Afro Futurist Weekend, October 4th through the 8th. Again, performances, visual art installations, panel discussions, the website is elasticarts.org forward slash AFW8. Again, Samuel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Joanne. I really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and